All right. Uh, political theory and um, other stuff. Um, Mike and Paul back at it again with Mark Fisher's Capitalist Realism. Um, we're on chapter nine, last chapter, part two, page 60 or 77. Mm-hmm. Okay. And um, before we get into part two, Paul wanted to recap on a topic on part one of chapter nine that we just didn't feel like we drove home enough. So Paul, if you want to touch base yeah. on that. Yeah, just kind of the uh, concept that Fisher brings up on page 76 uh, when he was referring to like the Tarkovsky films. And just the concept uh, that I just wanted to talk about is that I often hear in defense of capitalism is that without capitalization or without capitalism, innovation, uh, forward progress would really slow down. Um, and I think he makes a good point, you know, highlighting the, the cynicism and fear uh, that is inherent in late stage capitalism. And just the sense that with the way market structures are, that innovation, I feel like, has been slowed down by the stage that we're at in capitalism right now. Um, I'm not saying that was always the case, uh, but we have reached a point with, uh, I think people may shy away from the word monopoly, but I, I think we have a lot of monopolies out there. Um, but there's just a, a, a collection of certain powers that are, have really stagnated innovation, i.e. oil companies. Uh, really, really fight against alternative energies, both legislatively and with market control. Tech companies, uh, more in the range of communication, ISPs, things of that nature, uh, have really stagnated the market with their dominance. Um, And I think that that's a part of capitalism that just doesn't get discussed enough in this this day and age. So obviously we read it, but I just wanted to focus a little bit more on that. Yeah. And I would argue to or add that not only is it corporations um, stifling innovation, but also that at this point in human development and technology, that when you're talking about material innovations, not like, oh, I came up with a website that sells books online, but like actual physical innovations, they are so uh, now, the baseline to start innovation is so high and so technical that you need a lot of investment and a lot of time. And um, we see that without either um, investment from like, what, what is that called? The uh, like equity investment um, sort of yeah, like private equity. Yeah. If you don't have <laughs> private equity or government assistance, then you are not doing any sort of real innovation, right? Like the, all the people that are like trying to do like, let's say fusion um, or let's say um, even like, like increasing efficiency with lithium batteries. These people need millions, if not billions of dollars and a decade or more of time. Right. And so um, no longer is it like, Oh, well I can be in my basement with, um, you know, fucking a few parts I bought at Radio Shack and I'll be able to make the next new computer, (laughs) right? Like that's just not happening. And good luck being an innovator, just telling a company like, dude, I've got a great idea. I know how to get there. I'm going to need $400 million and you're not going to see a penny for 12 years. Wait, that shit is. uh, Well, and that, and that definitely happens, right? That, but that happens with, with um, people like Tesla, right? So Mm -hmm. people that are already millionaires, you know, people that. No, you um, can't do that from your garage. Right. Exactly. Right. Like if you don't have connections, if you don't already have capital, uh, a great idea. If it, if a great idea occurs to a poor person, it's probably not going to go very far. 
Yeah. Yep. Or yep. if it does, they were probably exploited. Right. Uh, I know that's a huge generalization, but I think that a lot of examples yeah. can pair that out. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I would say that's that's probably the rule, not the mm -hmm. exception, you know? Yeah. Um, so, all right. So do you want to um, get yeah, us started Yeah, thank you here? for allowing that for me. No, no, no. I, I, it's good to, to touch base on and cover things we feel like we haven't covered uh, thoroughly, you know? For sure. All right. Top of page 77. It's well past time for the left to cease limiting its ambitions to the establishing of a big state. But being at a distance from the state does not mean either abandoning the state or retreating into the private space of affects and diversity, which Zizek rightly argues is the perfect complement to neoliberalism's domination of the state. It means recognizing that the goal of a genuinely new left should not be to take over the state, but to subordinate the state to the general's will, to the general will. This involves, naturally, resuscitating the very concept of a general will, reviving and modernizing the idea of a public space that is not reducible to an aggregation of individuals and their interests. The methodolo methodological <laughs> individualism of the capitalist realist worldview presupposes the philosophy of Max Stirner as much as that of Adam Smith or Hayek in that it regards notions such as the public as spooks phantom abstractions devoid of content all that is real is the individual parentheses and their families the symptoms of the failure of this worldview are everywhere in a disintegrated social sphere in which teenagers shooting each other has become commonplace in which hospitals incubate aggressive superbugs what is required is that effect can be connected to structural cause against the postmodernist suspicion of grand narratives we need to reassert that far from being isolated contingent problems these are all the effects of single systematic cause capital we need to begin as if for our first time to develop strategies against a capital which presents itself as ontologically as well as geographically ubiquitous i don't have much to add to that because that was fucking genius but yeah. right yeah, but it, uh, what a daunting task, right? Yeah. What a seemingly insurmountable and daunting task. And but it just seems so crazy that it's hard to convince people you're more important than money. But holy shit. Holy and, shit. And that, that we are, that humans are important, period. You know, yeah. we've yeah. done such a good job at... Um, like he was saying, like uh, individual, like individualizing and atomizing people, and trying our best to break people out of the collective. You know? Yeah, and I know so many people, and at many times myself included, where I do feel like I'm in some sort of struggle by myself, like isolated, that nobody else is like feeling these things that I'm feeling, and I need to hide it. And the few people that I'm close enough with to uh, be honest without fear of repercussion, uh, I generally find that we're in very, very similar places. Yep. And you know, if everybody could collectively come to that understanding, uh, yep. I think, I don't know, maybe that's yep. a little. No, 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 I mean, but, but no, but it, it's essential that, um, that we understand that our, you know, because um, capitalist rea realism is international and all um, subsuming and consuming, we are all going to have 
some baseline issues, right? It's not that I'm essentializing uh, humanity. I'm not saying that all humans are always going to have this experience, but since all humans right now, or the vast, vast majority of humans are under the boot of capitalist realism, the vast majority of humans are going to be experiencing a lot of, you know, the problems we've talked about here. All right, so despite initial appearances and hopes, capitalist realism was not undermined by the credit crisis of 08. The speculations that capitalism might be on the verge of collapsing soon proved to be unfounded. It quickly became clear that far from constituting the end of capitalism, the bank bailouts were a massive reassertion of capitalist realist, or capitalist realist insistence that there is no alternative. Allowing the banking system to disintegrate was held to be unthinkable in italics. And what ensued was a vast hemorrhaging of public money into private hands. Nevertheless, what did happen in 08 was the collapse of the framework which was provided ideological cover for capitalist accumulation since the 1970s. After the bank bailouts, neoliberalism has, in every sense, been discredited. That is not to say that neoliberalism has disappeared overnight. On the contrary, its assumptions continue to dominate public or political economy, but they do so now no longer as part of an ideological project that has a confident forward momentum, but as as inertial undead uh, defaults. We can now see that while neoliberalism was necessarily capitalist realist, capitalist realism need not be neoliberal. In order to save itself, capitalism could revert to a model of social democracy or to a children of men like authoritarianism. Without a credible and coherent alternative to capitalism, Capitalist realism will continue to rule the political, uh, political economic unconscious. It's but, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, sorry, it's uh, really mind blowing to me how quickly neoliberalism took hold as well. You know, in its base form, and I'm probably so off base. So please, please, if you're listening and know better than me, tell me. Um, but in my mind, I feel like neoliberalism really gained its footing under the Clintons. You know, I mean, like Reagan and shit like that. But for as far as it being accepted wholeheartedly by both sides of the political sphere, you know, I, I feel like the Clintons were the, like Reagan is definitely a part of it, but the Clintons are what brings it into like, everybody's like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. I see the benefits of this all around. Um, and that is, I feel, where we had like that huge Overton shift of there not really being any sort of actual leftist ideas in the country. And I have to truly think about the fact that up until like the Reagan era, um, the true success of this country was built on the backbone of like government socialist programs. I feel like that just seems so foreign when I say it, but it, it really is pretty true. Um, yeah. You know, public. Yeah. Uh, government um, social programs were um, essential and um, uh, for, for a lot of the 20th century. But um 
I would say that um, you're underestimating the impact that, that the Reagan and Thatcher administrations had as far as, you know, really um, propelling uh, neoliberalism. You had people like uh, Milton Friedman being like advisors to not only Reagan, yeah. but also Thatcher, right? You had uh, people like Milton Friedman fucking helping uh, Pinochet uh, draft Chile's new constitution. I don't know enough about the history to know what the Democrats were saying at the time, but I know that the, the like, let's say liberal zeitgeist in the 80s was like the yuppie individualist consumerism sort of uh, cosmopolitan vibe, if that makes sense. This looking in on oneself and self-expression um, through material items rather than you know, what we had seen in the past as far as like unions and stuff. And, and like when Reagan um, broke the back of the uh, dudes that are in the control towers at the airports when they went on strike and, and uh, Reagan said that if they continued striking, he would make it illegal and like jail them and whatever. A lot of people point to that as um, one of the like um, groundbreaking moves. And then also, as, as Mark Fisher has talked about, uh, the miners strike in um in the uk was like the equivalent for for that that's so yeah no and when you put it like that that really does make me i guess think that the clintons were a response to that yeah, yeah. that train of neoliberalism yep and for me why they feel i guess more problematic is maybe the word i should use is that that was like the concession yeah that both parties are gonna do this you know i i don't know a ton about Dukakis, I'll be real honest, for the 88 election. Mm -hmm. um, but in 84, the person who ran against uh, Reagan was that Mondale guy. Mm -hmm. uh, and he was vice president to Carter, and his career started in a labor party. Okay. Um, so there was like an actual uh, leftist sense to who would be running uh, for the Democratic Party. And I feel like post Clinton, that has never even been an idea. But it's really post Reagan, if I yeah. think about it, if yeah. I want to like really attribute. And so that's my Thank you for pointing that stuff out because that is my my lack of foresight on like what caused that response. But but you're right. It was what happened in Reagan or during Reagan was so complete that that the Democrats are like, okay, the way that we win is doing what they literally called like the third way, you know. Right. And yeah. uh, um, uh, Tony Blair was a part of that too, where it's like this idea. They're they're like, okay, we'll flank them on the right with like uh, welfare reform, the uh, like crime bill and stuff yeah. like that, where it's yeah. literally like, well, no, we're, you know, um, we can, we can play this uh, conservative game better than the conservatives, which is just mind blowing yeah. to me. Yeah. It, it goes to show to me that at least in that moment, the uh, democratic establishment didn't have an ideology. What right. they were concerned about was achieving power right? Yep. They didn't care how they achieved that power. Because if you had an ideology, an ideological framework, you know, you would be even if your ideological framework were still pro capitalist, even if it was social right. democracy, you would not be um, saying stuff like welfare reform. Um, that just goes to show how it was more about let's have our team win than yeah. it was about anything else, you know, yeah. to the yeah. point where when an actual and not a communist, not a socialist, but an actual kind of slightly leftist person, i.e. Bernie Sanders, almost gets a nomination in your party. 
I don't have all statistics to prove this. Obviously, more people liked Biden. I'm not arguing yeah. against that. But or I more people that voted vote like, uh, right. liked yeah, Biden. He, you know? Yes, people showed up to the polls more for Biden. I'm yeah. not taking that away. Yeah. But um, from my perspective, uh, it really did seem like there was some coalescence within the DNC to lessen Bernie's kind of forward momentum. Yeah. Um, could I? Could it all have been coincidental? Of course it could have been. But, you know, the simultaneous dropouts, all of that shit right before Biden's strong points felt a little underhanded. Well, the dropouts and then also um, um, saying they endorsed Biden. You know, uh, Destiny has pointed out that Bernie historically and, and even during this campaign was really bad at getting uh, endorsements and mm-hmm. that he wasn't about reaching out and getting endorsements. And that's fair. That's totally fair. But I will say that I also feel like people that were on the fence I honestly feel like a lot of people like Beto O'Rourke and stuff, I could right. see them saying, because I don't feel like people like Beto O'Rourke have like a, a strong ideological framework, at least one that opposes the status quo, right? right. So I really think that for someone like Beto, it's, it's honestly like your team versus their team. It's like more about like partisan politics. And so yeah. he sees this and he's like, well, I feel like uh, there's a better chance of us winning with Biden, even though... Biden compared to Bernie isn't really saying anything. I'm going to to support the guy I feel like is going to have a better chance at at winning. Now, the other thing too, this is like my liberalism showing here. I'm trying to be as as fair as possible. But uh, people like Destiny have argued that if Biden sticks to the policies that he has said are part of his platform that he would be the most progressive, you know, politician or president we've had since like FDR. And that might be true in when you're comparing, but when you pull back the amount of, he's not far enough left on any policy, in my opinion, to make the type of change I'd like to see. And it's super hard for me. And this is just for me to, well, I'm just speaking for me, I guess yeah. is what I'm saying. I'm not saying nobody else could feel this way. It's hard for me because A, Biden is just recently adopting a lot of these policy changes. Now, I'm not saying that growth isn't good and that it's not possible, but yeah. he is just That's saying- That's what we're trying to do here. Right, exactly. But in my opinion, he is just saying these things without providing any substance behind them. Like he is adopting policy standpoints, i.e., loan forgiveness programs, healthcare things, but I haven't heard any substantiation of how these things could be done. Whereas that's one thing I'll give Bernie is his stump speech was super chock full of how he was going to do things. Right. Um, and uh, regardless of whether it was profitable or things of that nature, like he did have plans for how to accomplish free college, free health care. Well, I'm using free yeah. in quotes because we right, all understand right, that people right. are paying for them. At the I point of not, service. Yes, yes. Uh, I, nobody that I know actually thinks these things would have been free. Just right. want to clear that up. And with Biden, I feel like he is adopting those policies from what you were saying with Beto O'Rourke. He wants to win. He doesn't right. care about those policies. Those aren't integral to him or his growth. He didn't, in his you know later 70s, just have a full uh, opinion change about everything he believed before. Not saying that's impossible. I just don't buy that that's what's happening. Right. right. What you bring up, I hadn't thought about this before, but um, let's not forget uh, fucking a man in 2016, you know, that looked like a fucking Cheeto said that he <laughs> would be about giving everyone health care. Right. right? <laughs> And he also said that he was going to pull out of all the wars immediately and then also obliterate ISIS and kill their families. 
And, he's killed some families. In, in his and life. he's definitely, yeah, he's definitely killed some families. But my point is, is that when you looked at like early uh, Trump rhetoric, there were things that he was left of, of Clinton on. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, mm-hmm. none of that has come to flourishion, I think is the word. Right. So, um, so God, yeah, that, we don't want to forget that. Right. You know? and we're tangenting so hard. But I, I really do think, you know, always shout out to people like innuendo and stuff who plant yep. these thoughts. But um, I do think the best way to run against Trump uh, would be to highlight what he hasn't done. Um, because these people, so many Republicans openly admit that they don't think Trump is a good person, that they wouldn't have him over for dinner. But I think at their core, they still believe he's like this crazy element of change, um, that he is like going to come in and destroy these like fucking things that have held them back for generations or whatever. And so I would just like to see ads that are like statistics of Wall Street executives and White House positions prior to Trump, after Trump, just all these things that haven't changed at all, that he still gets to pretend uh, he has drained swamps or whatever the hell change he's pretending to have. I think if you were able to clearly and concisely highlight that, no, none of those things you wanted changed, changed. It's possible. I have no I, I Whatever. I have they no want idea. Trump to win because of that right. team mentality you're talking about. But arguing well, and against then, uh, And then also a lot of, you know, and, and I think we've talked about this before, you know, a lot of the, you know, a liberal establishment thinks that you can like fact check Trump into um, obscurity. And the reality is that even if a lot of his supporters will admit that he's wrong, or he hasn't accomplished some of these things, it all comes back to the deep state. It's because of the the radical leftists in, in air quotes, in Congress, preventing him from getting the job done, you know, but um, let's, no, 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 we're good. We're good. Um, I'm going to do the next, the next paragraph and maybe even the next two, and then I'll have you finish off. But even if it is now evident that the credit crisis will not uh, lead to the end of capitalism all by itself, the crisis has led to the relaxing of a certain kind of uh, mental paralysis. We are now in a political landscape littered with uh, what Alex Williams called ideological rubble. It is year zero again, and a face has been cleared for a new anti-capitalism to emerge, which is not necessarily tied to the old language or traditions. One of the left's vices is its endless rehearsal of historical debates, its tendency to keep going over Kronstadt? Yeah. Is that Kronstadt? So. Okay. Yeah. Or the, the new economic policy rather than planning and organizing for, the, for a future that it really believes in. The failure of previous forms of anti-capitalist political organization should not be a cause for despair. But what needs to be left behind is a certain romantic attachment to the, the politics of failure to the comfortable position of a defeated marginality. The credit crisis is an opportunity, but it needs to be treated as a tremendous uh, speculative challenge, a spur for a renewal that is not a return. As Boudot has forcefully insisted, an effective anti-capitalism capitalism must be a rival to capital not a reaction to it. There can be no return to pre-capitalism, pre-capitalist territorialities. Anti-capitalism must oppose capital's globalism 
with its own authentic universality. Um, yeah, so uh, those are just like a few really important things. Um, I think that um, that should not be overlooked. This idea that um, that the left has a tendency to, to endlessly, he, he says, uh, uh, rehearsal of historical debates rather than planning for the future. And then also yeah. the left has uh, a tendency to um, have a romantic attachment to the politics of failure and the comfortable position of a defeated marginality. Um, oh, it's so much more comfortable to say why things don't work than to be the person who is now in charge of making things work. Right. Yep. And, you know, I've literally listened to a podcast that like network shows bleep out swear words. Mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> uh, th th this uh, this podcast literally bleeps out the word Trotsky because they're so <laughs> anti-Trotskyist and Trotsky that they bleep this shit out, right? This is a dude that died in like 50 yeah. something, right? Yeah. And, and, the, and these, are, these are kids. These are people that are in like in their early to mid 20s. And they're so wrapped up in loving the USSR that they're like fucking anti-Trotskyist, you know? And they'll, and, and they'll bring on thinkers that are also anti-Trotskyist and that are like, um, you know, um, PhDs and whatever. And they, they'll like sit around and make fun of Trotskyists. And it's just like, damn, dude, like, I'm not saying Trotsky's perfect, but I'm also right. saying like, what we need to do with history is, and then the problem is, is that there are, uh, there is a tendency in um, non-leftist circles, like um, fucking Fisher talks about, to be ahistorical. And what happens mm -hmm. is our reaction to that is sometimes to be, obsessed with history in in a sense and so the idea in my mind is to look at history to see what we can glean from it and what important ideas we can get from it but not to uh obsess with it you know right. and and even if i was um even if i was pro ussr 100 percent, which i'm not but even if i was i would never for this podcast have any uh ussr imagery because we need to be looking to the future Right? right. And that's not to say, and we do need to battle a historicalness and we do need to battle the amnesia of capitalist realism, but we also don't need to get stuck in the history. And no. oh, for yeah. sure. History yeah. is, God, I'm so overgeneralizing here, but history is obviously unbelievably effective because that is our shared knowledge. Like without history, we would be starting from square one every fucking single day we woke up. But it's most, to me, it seems like it's useful to use more as a tool of what not to do than as a tool of what to do. So many times my frustrations come from the fact of like, dude, do you not know about 60 years ago? Like, why is this shit making a comeback? It already happened, it didn't go well. We don't need to try this again. Like, mm -hmm. let's try some new shit. So, yeah, it's important to know about the USSR. Yeah. It's important to have, I think, a fair, as fair of a perspective of it as you can. Yep. Uh, were there good things about it? Of yep. course there were. Were yep. there unbelievably terrible things about it? Of yep. course there were. Yep. So, is it fair to maybe try and keep some of those good things? Sure. Yep. But we should also be super focused on making sure none of those bad things happen. The most beneficial part of knowing the history of the USSR or the history of Mao is to know that these concepts can also lead to tragic and devastating consequences if handled incorrectly. It's not always the system that you're going to use. It's also making sure that you're pragmatic in instituting it. Like mm -hmm, don't, mm -hmm, don't mm -hmm. have, like you were saying earlier, have an actual ideological framework 
and mm -hmm. stick to it when you're making it because every concession mm -hmm. you make yeah. is probably not going to have great results in the long run. Yeah. Just the whole anti-capitalism must oppose capital's globalism right. with its own authentic universality. I think that's super important. And that's why I am, that's one of the reasons why I'm opposed to like isolationism when it comes to, um, to trade and stuff and, and also yeah. um, immigration and, and migration, you know. So I'm going to do this last paragraph here. We'll talk about it and then and then you can wrap the book up. It is uh, crucial that a genuine a genuinely revitalized left confidently occupy the new political terrain I have very provisionally sketched here. Nothing is inherently political. Politicalization requires a political agent which can transform the taken for granted into the up for grabs. If neoliberalisms triumphed by incorporating the desires of the post-68 working class, a new left could begin by building on the de desires which neoliberalism has generated, but which it has been unable to satisfy. For example, the left should argue that it can deliver what neoliberalism signally, signally? signally failed to do a massive re reduction of bureaucracy. What is needed is a new struggle over, over work and who controls it. An assertion of worker autonomy as opposed to control by management, together with a rejection of certain kinds of, of labor, such as the ex excessive auditing, which has become so central feature of work in post-Fordism. Is that right? It might not be a typo, but it certainly does not read well. You read okay. it exactly correctly. But okay. I think maybe like a two somewhere yeah. would help. I'm yeah. Sure. Uh, Sorry. No, no, you're good. You're good. Um, this is a struggle that can be won, but only if a new political subject coalesces. It is an open question as to whether the old structures, such as the trade unions, will be capable of nurturing that subjectivity or whether it will entail the formation of wholly new political organizations. Mm -hmm. New forms of industrial action need to be instituted against managerialism. For instance, in the case of teachers and lecturers, the tactic of strikes or even of marking bans, um, and I assume that means like not grading not students. Grading? Yeah, yeah, that's genius. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> never heard um, that. yeah me neither. Uh, should be abandoned uh, because they only hurt students and members. At the college where I used to work, one-day one strikes were pretty much welcomed by management because they saved on the wage bill whilst causing negligible disruption to the college. What is needed is the strategic withdrawal of forms of labor, which will only be noticed by management. All of the machineries, is that machineries? Yeah. Okay, all of the machineries of self-surveillance that have no effect whatsoever on the delivery of education, but which managerialism could not exist without. Instead of the gestural, spectacular politics around noble, in parentheses, causes like Palestine, it is time that teaching unions got far more, what is Imminent. that word? Imminent. Imminent. Okay, and take the opportunity opened up by the crisis to begin to rid public services of business ontology. 
when even business can't be run as businesses, why should public services? Boom. Very, very true. Very it true. really is. Like yep. we talk about it all the time, but the concept that so many businesses make money by going out of business is fucking ridiculous. Or so many people make money. I guess the businesses don't make money, but people make money by putting the businesses out of business, by running them uh, for profit margins for two years and then abandoning projects. I'm being silly here, but what that really made me think about when they were talking about management welcoming strikes, they're done ineffectively, mm. reminds me of just shit like the Matrix trilogy or Snowpiercer. Um, where at the top they build in this like feeling of that you have this like like Snowpiercer like they let them have that whole strike the whole getting through the train just at the front to be like yeah we planned this and actually dude like this strike has to happen for things to to keep going or with the Matrix like at the end I know it's silly but at the end with everything being like well Neo yeah dude you're not the first one we have this protest this kickback function once every 10,000 years because it helps satiate everything you know Um, that concept is yeah if you don't change the system all rebellions will end up being like necessary built-in features to keep it going Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. so that's why you can't just keep according to the matrix and snowpiercer at least um, (laughs) that's why (laughs) that's why you can't just keep trying to use rebellions within an existing system if you want anything to change the whole system has to and you can't maybe use the same form of right. of rebellion right yeah which ties yeah. in with what we're talking about with history right too. if your rebellion ends with the system in place yeah it didn't do what right. it's supposed to do um so do you want to uh oh yeah on we, home sorry here? yes yes all right um we must convert widespread mental health problems from medicalized conditions into effective antagonisms Affective disorders are forms of captured discontent. This disaffection can and must be channeled outwards, directed towards its real cause, capital. Furthermore, proliferation of certain kinds of mental illness and late capitalism makes the case for a new austerity, a case that is also made by the increasing urgency of dealing with environmental disaster. Nothing contradicts capitalism's constitutive imperative towards growth more than the concept of rationing goods and resources. Yet, it is becoming uncomfortably clear that consumer self-regulation and the market will not by themselves avert environmental catastrophe. There is a libidinal as well as a practical case to be made for this new asasis. Uh, word of the... Yeah, I yeah. What that word yeah, means. I don't know either. Um, I don't even know if I came close to saying it correctly. That's not like... Sometimes there's words I've seen before that I can't pronounce uh, just because I've only read them. This is definitely a word I've never used seen before okay yeah me neither okay so it will not it comes up has spelled a-s-k-e-s-i-s okay traditionally but with that c being an alternative spelling and it's the practice of severe self-discipline typically for religious reasons okay damn and that is a good point i love his word choice because throughout this book it has caused me to think of capitalism as a religion more than I ever have before. Right. Um, yep. And so using that, yeah, we do have these self-punishing religious tendencies just to keep capitalism in charge. Yep. Uh, and I just love that imagery. And it's yep. one that I had never really put yep. together in my head before. Yeah, me neither. Me neither. All right. This, there is a libidinal as well as a practical case to be made for this new Eskesis, I guess is how I'm supposed to say. If, as Oliver James, Zizek, and Super Nanny have shown, unlimited license leads to misery and disaffection, then limitations desire are likely to quicken rather than deaden. 
dead in it. In any case, rationing of some sort, the issue is whether it will be collectively managed or whether it will be imposed by authoritarian means when it is already too late. Quite what forms this collective management should take is, again, an open question, one that can only be resolved practically and experimentally. The long, dark night of the end of history has to be grasped as an enormous opportunity. The very oppressive pervasiveness of capitalist realism means that even glimmers of alternative political and economic possibilities can have a disproportionately great effect. The tiniest event can tear a hole in the gray curtain of reaction, which has marked the horizons of possibility under capitalist realism. From a situation in which nothing can happen, suddenly anything is possible again. Boom! Damn, son. Damn. Fucking uh, literal goosebumps, dude. And dude. I've read that before. Dude. Also, literal goosebumps. Yeah. Fuck yeah. That is the end of Capitalist Realism by Mark Fisher. And uh, what we are going to be doing is next episode, Paul and I, potentially with a guest, will be covering the book in its totality kind of talking about the things that we found most striking or the things that uh, resonated with us the most and, and the things we, we think are important for, for others to get out of it. Um, and we, we appreciate you all uh, spending time with us, getting through uh, the end of the book, and we look forward to uh, talking about it overall uh, next episode. Yeah, thank you very much. Have a great day.